You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18 this morning. If you are uh, new to First Baptist visiting, we have uh, just a little background. We've been studying Paul's letter of Romans for quite some time now. Um, and uh, one of the benefits and challenges of studying the Bible uh, and or benefits of studying, I guess, a letter like this, Paul's letter to the Romans, verse by verse, uh, is, is that you've, uh, you deal with every verse that comes. And uh, so, so we're not uh, skipping and picking and choosing uh, things, but we're just working our way systematically through that. And sometimes that means, though, that we're talking about some of the difficult parts of the Bible and uh, uh, challenging kinds of things, deep kinds of things. One of my favorite stories is about a, a preacher who ended his sermon one week by announcing that he was going to preach on the story of Noah's ark on the following Sunday, and he gave the text for what he was going to be reading out of, and there was a couple of Sunday school boys um, that noticed something interesting about the placement of that story and in, the, in the Bible, so they decided to have a little bit of fun, and they slipped into the church uh, sometime during the week, and they glued a couple of pages of the Bible together. And uh, on the next Sunday, the preacher got up to read his text, and he, he began reading like this, and Noah uh, took unto himself a wife, and she was, and he turned the page, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. And uh, he paused and he scratched his head and he turned the page back over and, and he, he turned it back again and he looked up and he told his congregation, he says, I've been studying the Bible now for 50 years and there are still some things in it that are hard to understand. Now, isn't that the truth? Amen? And uh, when it comes to understanding God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility and, and uh, a predestination and election, uh, the, these are matters that, that are very deep and, and hard to believe and certainly hard to accept. And yet these are the matters that, that we're talking about here in Romans chapter, chapter 9. And uh, so we approach them with a humility uh, as we come before God's Word, a humility that says, I, I don't really claim to have all of the answers about all of these things and how they work together. But also we come with a conviction to say that the answers that I do have come from the Scriptures. Uh, and, and, and we pray for God's help to understand and to believe these things. And so these passages in Romans 9 are among the most difficult in the Bible um, because of what they teach us about God. And uh, as Paul says at the end of this section, over in Romans 11, he will, after explaining these things to us, he will say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And uh, that's what we're talking about. And uh, so let's look at his word together this morning. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Lord, we come humbly before you today and your word once again confessing that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and that is why we've gathered to sing how great you are but lord we pray that you would help us to understand these things help us to understand more of who you are more of how you work in our hearts and lives that we might worship you and give you the glory that you deserve. And so we pray today that you would help us in the power of your spirit. Pray that you would help me, Lord. Pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Paul began his letter uh, to the Christians there in Rome, he wrote in Romans 1.16. We've revisited this many times. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in verse 17, immediately following that, we're given the reason why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He goes on to say this, for in it, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice the phrase there in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed that's incredibly important given the fact of what Paul says uh, next in, in describing our greatest problem there in Romans 1 verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The reason that we're separated from God is because of our unrighteousness. God is a righteous God and we are unrighteous, sinful beings. And so Paul spends the first three chapters driving this point home, and then he gets to chapter 3, 21 and 22, where he writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The reason the gospel is the power of God for salvation is because it reveals to us the righteousness of God. Salvation is receiving the gift of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus. It is why no one is saved by their good works. We are, we are saved by the righteousness of Christ alone. We receive that as a gift. It is revealed in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, 
uh, his resurrection on the third day. And when we put our faith in him, that righteousness is given to us. Now, the reason Paul's heart is broken in Romans chapter 9 is because of his kinsmen, the Israelites, were rejecting the righteousness of God in Christ. And they were trying to earn their own righteousness. In verses 4 and 5, chapter 9, they were relying on all of their religious privileges, thinking that they were already righteous because of them. And this was leading to a a question, a problem. Well, if the gospel really is the power of God for salvation to everyone, then why are so many Jews rejecting it? And, and, And so Paul is offering here a defense of the gospel of God. The first thing He noted in verse 6, we talked about last week, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul explains that God's promise from the very beginning was not to save all of those who were descended from Abraham. Verse 7, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israelites, that is, as a nation, are true Israelites, that is, the people of God. That's that's the distinction that he's made. And he gives two examples. He tells about from all the way back to Abraham, the patriarch, if you will, uh, have God chose one of Abraham's son to continue the promise. He chose Isaac and not uh, Ishmael. Uh, He chose one of Isaac's twin sons. We learn about in verses 11 and 12. Uh, He chose Jacob over his brother Esau to continue the promise. He says, though they were not yet born, this is verse 11, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In other words, God's choosing of Jacob and and passing over of Esau was not based on anything in those two boys, we are told, but it was based on God's sovereign choice of them. And and I know the immediate reaction to that, and we mentioned it last week, um, I know it because it was the reaction of my own so many years ago, is, though that's not fair. That's not fair. And the fact that Paul ask that very question in our text, in our text today, gives veracity that that what he is saying here, that he means what he says here. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I know that some read those verses and they think that, that perhaps God looks ahead and he sees who will have faith and who won't And then he elects them based on their decision. And if that was what Paul meant in verse 11 that we just read, then my question is, why raise this next question? Because why would anyone think of God as unjust, unrighteous, for choosing people based on their future decisions, either good or bad? What could be fairer than that? It's, not, it's simply not what the text is teaching. Both Jacob and Esau were sinful men, and, and yet God chose to bless one of them with his saving love, and he passes over the other. And the only reason that we are given, certainly not arbitrary, but he says it is in order, verse 11, that God's purpose of election might continue. 
Now, Paul anticipates the next objection by asking, is there injustice on God's part? Because there is a reaction to us, and it is a response we we might think about. One commentator put it, this seems to make God arbitrary or whimsical or capricious. An opponent might draw up a a straw man here uh, on this, a picture of God in heaven saying, uh, any, many, miny, mo, you're in, you're out, and and, and very kind of uh, 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 whimsical, if if you will. Maybe even the reason that the Jews are rejecting the gospel is is because they think God is unjust or unrighteous or unfair, that the blame must be somewhere on God. Paul responds passionately to that question, doesn't he? Just like he did the first. He says, verse 14, by no means is this the case. It's the strongest negative denial in the Greek language. The King James Version has it, God forbid. It's as if to say, no, 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 a thousand times no, God is never unfair. He's never unfair. Remember, it is in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed, right? Not the unrighteousness of God, not the injustice of God, but the righteousness of God. There is no injustice in God. There is no iniquity in our God. And the gospel that is the power of God for salvation reveals the righteousness of God. And so Paul gives two explanations, once again, from the Scriptures. And uh, I want to pause there before we look at them and remind you that that should always be the place that we go, the Scriptures. When we hear things, when we think things, when we process things, when we're confused about things, when things seem off, when things seem right, uh, whenever we have questions, we should always go to the Bible for the answers. Amen? Would you agree with that, church? That was Paul's reaction here, and we see it all over this chapter. His gut reaction in dealing with these objections is to go to the Scriptures. He gives two answers for us. First of all, notice that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God in His mercy. In His mercy. Citing Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, Paul writes in verse 15, For, here's the reason why there's no injustice and unfairness in God, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have, I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, to understand Paul's argument, we need to remind ourselves of Exodus and uh, the very famous passage in Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, which is where this text comes from and where which Moses asked to see the glory of God. And uh, so if you haven't read it, it's a great Sunday afternoon kind of a read, Exodus 32 and 3 and 4 through there, wonderful part of the story. The reason Moses is asking that question is because he needs to be strengthened in his faith. And here's why. Exodus 32, Moses had been up on the mountain with God, uh, receiving the Ten Commandments to bring back down to the people. And the Israelites are down at the foot of the mountain, and they have given up on God, and they've decided to worship a golden calf that they have formed. And uh, that day, God had 3,000 of them put to death. And there was a plague that followed. 
And, and, and we understand there some things that, that you might imagine this made everyone a little bit uneasy, including Moses, that God was not just a God who saves and a God of grace, but he was also a God who judges and a God of wrath. And, and he had the right to put the whole nation to death for their sin. But he only had 3,000 of them killed in immediate judgment. And you remember Moses' response, I'll remind you of it, Moses uh, went immediately to God to intercede for the people. Chapter 32, verse 32, Moses says to God, but now if you will forgive their sin, but, but he says, if not, please, he says, blot me out of their book that you have written. It's interesting language, and I made the comparison a couple of weeks ago to Paul in our chapter, Romans 9, verse 3, when Paul says up there, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You can see that this passage in Exodus was on Paul's mind as he wrote Romans chapter 9. He's pleading with God for the salvation of his people. And God has a gracious disposition, thank goodness. He doesn't, he doesn't destroy them all. And Moses comes to God in chapter 33, verse 16, with a lot of honesty uh, and needing faith, uh, his faith strengthened. He says to God, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, 33 verse 16. In other words, are you going to be gracious to me, God? In uh, Exodus 33, 17, God says to him, you have found favor in my sight. And then Moses, in effect, says, well, could you show me? Could you show me, God? Show me your glory. And then Exodus 33, 19, which is what Paul is quoting, God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will pro proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In, in other words, God is saying, I, I will show you grace. I will show you mercy. But remember, it is my divine prerogative to do so it is my right to judge 3,000 and it is my right to show mercy to the rest I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy and so here is Paul in Romans 9 picturing someone who is saying that God is God choosing to set his mercy on one person and another person, that that is somehow unfair, that that is injustice, unrighteousness in God. And, and I want you to think about this a little bit. Think about just the word mercy alone, because to say that mercy is unfair is to say that mercy is owed to everybody. But that's not mercy, is it? Because the very definition of mercy uh, is that which is undeserved. It, it's, it's actually owed to no one. And, and to say that God is unfair, uh, that he only has mercy on some, is really a self-contradicting statement. It's to think uh, similarly to think that God owes salvation to everyone. He doesn't. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone, any of us, church. 
And so Paul, in raising this verse, is pointing out the very question of God's sense of justice or fairness is a flawed question. Is it, it's in effect, is it fairness that you want out of God? Is it justice for all that you want from God? Brothers and sisters, we do not want God's justice. You do not want this because the fair thing to do and the just thing to do is for all of us to come under his wrath. No one in this room is deserving. That's his point. And if, you, if, you've, if you've not understood that yet, then you've misunderstood all of what Paul has been telling to us, saying to us about who God is and who we are, how sinful we are before him. No one who has followed Paul's argument in these earlier chapters could doubt this. Romans 3, 10 and through 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've been become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All human beings deserve hell, not heaven. Justice, judgment, not mercy. And, 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 and that is the justice of God. If any person is to be saved, Paul is saying here, it is only by the mercy of God. If we talk about what we deserve, it's judgment. Mercy has nothing to do with what people have done, but rather it finds its source in God and in His will. Notice that's what Paul says, verse 16. So then, here's what it depends on, not on human will, not on exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's, there's absolutely nothing in you or me that has caused God to have mercy on us. There's nothing in us, no single thing that, that we have done or could do to merit His, his mercy. There's, there's not one prayer that we've prayed. There's not one person that we've led to Christ. There's nothing in our lives that has caused God to have mercy on If there was something, then it wouldn't be mercy. It'd be deserved. Boyce writes this, mercy describes the giving of salvation to people who actually deserve to perish. It's providing heaven for those who merit hell. And that's exactly right. I think it was D. James Kennedy that used this illustration. It might be helpful to you in thinking about some of how this works together. But he used to, I'm pretty sure it was him, he used to tell a story about five friends, and it's illustration purposes only, but five friends that, may, that would come, come to you. They say they come, they come to you, and, and they tell you, these five friends tell you that the recession has been really hard, and they're having a lot of trouble uh, making their uh, rents, and uh, so they're going to go and rob a bank. And uh, you tell them, you know, that's a terrible idea. You would tell them that, right? Amen. That's a terrible idea. There's a lot of things that could go wrong with this, and plus it's just wrong to do so. And uh, so you, you try to tell them that, and you try to tell them there's going to be consequences for that, but they say, no, we're, we're not going to do that. You just need to get out of our way. We're out of here, and we're going right now to do this. And as they're going out the door, let's say that you, uh, you know, with some kind of whim, you, you grab the, the, a ball bat that was laying over in the corner, and you managed to whack a couple of them. 
and, and restrained them, however you want to put it, and restrained them, and while the other three took off. And uh, the other three, and they, they went and they robbed a bank, and in the process, some bad things happened. They, the guard was killed, and, and uh, they're tried and convicted, and now they're on death row. And you go to see them, and, and they, they immediately complain to you. You know, it is terribly unfair that you only took two of us. If you only took two of us, you should have you had all of us. It, it's your fault that we're in here. I think you'd probably look at them and say, that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, the, the two people... The two people who are free have me and, and me alone to thank, uh, but the three of you have you and you alone to blame, right? Since all of you deserve to be in here, therefore it wasn't unfair for me to take two of you. I wasn't obligated to take any of you. So, so we, we can't say, Kennedy would use that to say, we can't say that God sends out the message to everyone and if he decides to show mercy on some, that it's unfair. It's only unfair if everybody deserves God's mercy. But friends, none of us deserve it. I know that leads to a bigger question. Why doesn't God just save everybody? I don't have any idea. That's in the mind of God. I don't know. He has his reasons, I'm sure, but we do not know them. But here's what we do know and what he's told us, that God would have been completely just and fair to condemn us all. The shocking thing is, it ought to be, is that God, it's not that God does not extend his mercy to everyone, but that he extends it to anyone. Completely shocking. Uh, one commentator put it like this, the elect get grace, the non-elect get justice, but nobody gets injustice. God is not unfair, but his, he's righteous in his mercy. That's what Paul's saying. He's righteous in giving mercy. That's hard, I know. Uh, makes me want to go back to Noah's wife was... A hundred cubits long and all those things, right? It's hard. But if you can grasp a little bit of that, perhaps you can see a little bit of the second way God reveals His righteousness, that He also reveals His righteousness in His judgment. In His judgment. Paul goes back to the same Old Testament book and uh, to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 for his argument. There in verse 17, he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now there's a big context for this verse too, for this verse. This is the story of God, you might remember, sending his plagues on Egypt in the process of delivering his people, the Israelites. And uh, so as we go back and we, we were look at Exodus chapters 4 and 14, it's probably a long read for a Sunday afternoon, but you could do it. There's a fascinating picture here. In uh, the early parts of this story, we're told several times, and you may be familiar with this, that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. In other words, in light of these plagues, he would not let the Israelites go. 
But also we're told, and in fact, several more times, I think twice as many times, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And uh, that's what Paul is emphasizing here. Here is a sinful man whom God raised up to be the leader of all of Egypt, who uh, thinks that he can oppose God, that he doesn't have to listen and follow and obey God. And, and God is basically saying in that story, you think you can oppose me uh, uh, by hardening your heart. I, I've raised you up for, to this position, to this stage, if you will. That's what that means, by the way. He's, he's put him on display, put Pharaoh on display for the world uh, to see uh, in order to show, God says, my majesty and power that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And so Paul uses that story to point out the truth, verse 18 of God's sovereignty. He says, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and God hardens whomever he wills. That's incredibly difficult. We might be tempted here to say again, that can't be what Paul means. I mean, surely there's got to be something else. I mean, if God is sovereign over all people, and he shows mercy exclusively on the basis of his own choice, if he hardens whomever he wills, it's, if, if this is all of God's sovereignty, then how in the world can God find fault in people? Because at this point, who can resist his will? Surely Paul is not saying this. Surely he doesn't mean this. But if you've read Romans 9, you know that verse 19, that's the very next questions that he asks. We'll talk more about it next week, but the point here is that, again, God is righteous in both his mercy and judgment in his hardening of Pharaoh. What does that mean that God hardens unbelievers? I think it's important to note that when God hardens someone, he doesn't create hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way in their sin. If you remember back to Romans chapter 1, uh, there, the end of the chapter, talks about how God gave them up to their sin. He just gave them over. He said, okay, if that's where you want to go, uh, I, he, he handed them over to it. Remember this. We are already sinners. All have sinned. All are facing the condemnation of God. Pharaoh was not a nice guy. Uh, whom God had created this in him and twisted him. No, uh, Pharaoh was a terrible sinner. This was a man who was willing to put, remember, all the babies two years old and under to death of the Jews. Terrible man. Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. God does not create evil or put it there, but he aggravates what is there for his own great purpose. God never made Pharaoh an unbeliever because he was already an unbeliever. God aggravated his unbelief in order to pass his own great purpose of showing his power and glory. And we see that uh, throughout Scripture. God's abandoning a sinner to wickedness, to his own sin. It's not an act of unrighteousness of God to do that. 
It actually reveals God's righteousness, his perfect justice. It's in, again, it's in effect him saying, you want to sin? You, you want to sin? Then be my guest. I'm not going to strive with you anymore. I'm, I'm going to remove my restraint and let you do whatever you want. God passed over Esau and he hardened Pharaoh and he did so without doing them any injustice. He chose Jacob and Israel in his sovereign mercy. Both of those things reveal the righteousness of God. Now, I want to remind you as we close that there's still more to be said here, isn't there? And Paul's not finished yet. Uh, Part of me wishes I could have just addressed this whole chapter in one sermon and then we could have moved on, but there's a lot here. And I know you still have questions, and I want to caution you at this point. It's okay to ask questions, but I want to caution you at this point to jump to kind of faulty conclusions and straw men at this point. There's a a quote from Piper that offers some caution that I think might be helpful, and this will close. He said, for those who, like myself, confess Romans 9 as Holy Scripture and accord it an authority over our lives... The implications of this are profound. We will surely not fall prey to the naive suggestions, here's the warnings, that in light of this teaching that we cease to pray or that we abandon evangelism because of this doctrine of God's sovereignty. He says if we did that, he goes on, we would only, we would only betray our failure to be grasped by this theology. Why does he say that? Because he lists Paul. Here was Paul who told us, in light of the sovereignty of God, pray without ceasing. Here was the Apostle Paul grieving over the lost Jews, his kinsmen, who said in 1 Corinthians 15, he worked harder than any of the other apostles in evangelism. Here's the response we need to have. Piper continues. On the contrary, we will be deeply sobered by the awful severity of God, humbled to the dust by the absoluteness of our dependency on His unconditional mercy. Thus, we will be moved to forsake all confidence in human distinctives or achievements, and we will entrust ourselves to the mercy of God alone. And we'll extend this mercy to others. That's a good word. What should our response be? Well, it should be humility. It should be, once again, me coming to the table and you coming to this, this, this table, this, this gathering of worship and saying, my goodness, there's nothing in me that would ever merit the mercy and grace of God. Nothing. And then, as a response... We should give ourselves ceaselessly to prayer and tirelessly to evangelism because because of this sovereign mercy of God. Again, is this not the bookends of this whole text that we've been looking at? Paul weeping for the lost in chapter 9. Paul worshiping God for this great salvation at the end of chapter 11. Lord, I know these, these things are difficult and, and uh, we pray, Lord, for your help today to understand them. But 
Help us mainly to understand once again today that there is nothing in us that we have. There's no cause in us to be able to merit your incredible mercy and love and grace. And Lord, may this bring us to the dust, as Piper says. Bring us to our knees where we are once again giving you all of the praise and glory for our salvation. You have, as we read uh, in our gospel primer today, that this is the gospel's way of of eliminating every angle that we might come for pride. No, it is to destroy all of it, and we pray that you, you would, Lord that you would get all of the glory for our salvation. And Lord, with Paul, we also are burdened for friends, loved ones, neighbors, even those who might be here today who have not trusted in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help them to see, open their eyes to see like you did the blind man Bartimaeus, uh, that they would see the glory of Christ and all that he's done and put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.